What you see is what you get. Hello, my name is Pastor Chris Miller, and I am your host on the PC Speaking Podcast, where we are equipping Christians for life. Hello, and welcome to the ever-popular, always-growing PC Speaking Podcast, where we are nothing if we're not optimistic. Thanks for taking the time to tune in. Appreciate you guys. Pray for you daily. We are back in our study of types and shadows this week. After a brief hiatus last week, we took some time to talk about biblical finances, episode number 122, I believe that was. If you'd like to go back and check it out, it's not 22, it's 23. I should know that, but I guess it's not that big a deal. You're smart, you can figure it out. Before we get into today's episode, I am going to take a moment and talk about something that's coming up in the new year. For 2024, we are doing a one-year through the Bible reading program. Uh, We have a couple of resources that are going to come along with that. Uh, I will be putting out a daily podcast for the entire year, which will um, include some brief thoughts, insights, questions for meditations, and the day's reading. If you'd like to be part of that, we would love to have you as part of that. And we're going to see if we can make uh, the workbook that comes with that. Well, it's not so much a workbook. It's like a daily reading guide that comes along with it. It'll have introductions to the books of the Bible, to the day's reading, overviews, few uh, questions just to provoke thought and give you something to meditate on for the day. So if you've never read your Bible completely through before, or if you'd like to do it again, we'd love to have you as part of our one year through the Bible reading program for 2024, beginning on 1 January. Again, it's going to be an everyday thing. And I'll actually do the reading on the podcast. I'll read through the reading for the day. So you can just listen if you would like to do so. But we are back in our study of types and shadows again today. Types and shadows in general are symbolic representations that point to a greater spiritual truth or reality. We've already talked about a few of those, the serpent in the wilderness, the sacrifice of Isaac, the Passover lamb. And today we move on to a new one, Noah's Ark, a very well-known Bible story. I don't, I don't know if anybody doesn't know about Noah's Ark. There's probably somebody out there who hasn't heard of it, but very prominent event. And even though it is such a prominent event, the story of Noah's Ark and the Ark itself points to an even greater spiritual truth and reality. It is uh, the flood, Noah's life, the ark are filled with types and shadows. Does anybody remember, maybe you remember, about 10 years ago, there was a movie that came out called Noah. Uh, I think it starred Russell Crowe, which is kind of a shame because I kind of like him and other things. But what a stupid movie that was. I remember being excited when I saw the trailer. Uh, well, I don't know. I guess I probably shouldn't call it stupid because I didn't bother to watch it once I read the reviews. Uh, Christian people thought it was a terrible movie because it had nothing to do with the biblical narrative except a flood and a guy named Noah. And secular people thought it was a terrible movie because it was a terrible movie. The the reality of the biblical flood is difficult for people to accept. And there's several reasons for that. The entire world being covered by water, it's hard to get your head around that, hard to believe that. Fitting all the animals onto the ark, That's another struggle. 
There's also uh, dealing with the fact that God eradicates all life on earth, the perceived morality of that, um, and that he brought through Noah, the animals on the ark, and that's the only life that he rescued from that flood. So a lot of people struggle with that. But as Christians, um, there's a lot of ministry dedicated to proofs and evidence and some things like that. But it's very easy to get bogged down in the details of proof and evidence and minimize or even miss the greater spiritual truths and realities that the flood, Noah, and the ark point to. And that's not to make light of, you know, the proofs, evidences, ministries that do that kind of thing. But considering the magnitude of a global flood and the fact that it points to something greater, that something must be very great indeed. And many cultures, civilizations, um, areas of the world have legends, myths, geographic evidence of a catastrophic flood. Um, A lot of those, you know, they say they're local. Of course, Christians believe in a global flood. And obviously there would be local events as well. There was one of those where I grew up in Idaho um, called the Bonneville Flood. And the story goes that Lake Bonneville in Northern Utah covered the present day uh, Great Salt Lake Basin. And Lake Bonneville supposedly covered about 80,000 square kilometers or 32,000 square miles. That's a big lake. And it breached its bank at a place called Red Rock Pass. And there was a natural dam that collapsed when that happened. And when that dam collapsed, it released a wall of water that was 120 meters high or 410 feet high, which is a massive, massive wall of water. That's hard to imagine. And at the peak of that flood, there was uh, approximately 930,000 cubic meters. Um, I think that equates to like 3 million cubic feet per second or something like that. And that water was traveling at up to 110 kilometers per hour or 70 miles per hour, whichever, you know, continent you happen to be on. And near where I lived, I grew up near the Snake River Canyon in Idaho. And it cut out that Snake River Canyon, which is 600 feet deep. And like I say, it's very near where I grew up. I remember going down to the river and fishing when I was a kid and hanging out down there. And there are massive boulders all over the place that were left by this flood. There's smaller ones too, but there's some that are quite big. And that much water could move some pretty big rocks, obviously, and it did. And there's a recent theory put forth that uh, there had been a stable outflow from Lake Bonneville for a thousand years leading up to the Bonneville flood. And the theory puts forth the idea that there was a single catastrophic event that caused a flood. And the theory is there was a big earthquake that caused the water to surge and a tsunami on this lake that probably wiped out the dam and caused a flood. So a catastrophic event caused a very big flood. Now, around the same time, um, maybe you've heard of the Missoula floods. They took place around the same time. And the water flow from those floods was like 17 million cubic meters per second or something like that. It's just unbelievably huge amount of water. Spells like there was a wall of ice that was 2,000 feet tall and 30 miles wide that suddenly broke loose and that unleashed what is labeled as the largest flood in the history of the earth. Now, when I think about those events, as a Christian, as a believer, you know, I'm 
I believe the Bible is literal. I mean, there is allegory in it. There are, you know, um, pictures, things like that in it that aren't literal, but there are a lot of things that are literal. And I, you know, I'm a believer in six literal days of creation, uh, a biblical flood, I believe all those things. Now, in those floods that I talked about, were those part of the biblical flood? Could be, but they could have also been local events as well. You know, I like to think they were, but obviously I'm biased in my thinking. But either way, it doesn't take away. One doesn't take away from the other, the biblical flood or the local flood. Those are just a couple of flood theories um, that I happen to know about because they were near where I grew up. And there's a lot of geological evidence to support those theories. And there are many legends, myths, um, in different cultures of a great flood all over the world. And there's a lot of geological evidence to support that. And I've heard, you know, some people say, as they do, well, every culture has a flood myth. And, and they say that as if that somehow disproves Noah's flood. But it seems to me that so much geological evidence, theories, flood legends would be more evidence for Noah's flood than against it. And for me, like I say, I'm settled on it personally, as I'm sure many of you are. If, if you're listening to this, you're probably settled on it as well. But I just bring those things up just to consider the magnitude of what we're talking about when we talk about a global flood that destroys all life on earth, except the lives protected by the ark. Um, that it's, it's hard to get a re- our head around how big that is. And in the New Testament, Jesus, Jesus confirmed Noah's flood and he did so in the context of his own return. And he makes a comparison between the days of Noah and the time of his return. And he does that in Matthew chapter 24, verses 36 through 39. And I'm going to go ahead and read those. And then we'll dig into, dig into that a bit and a few other passages from Genesis as well. Matthew 24, verses 36 through 39. This is what they say. It says, concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my father only. As were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus says that in the days of Noah, people doing all the normal things that they do. They were, you know, eating, drinking, getting married. And all those things were going on right up until Noah entered the ark. And the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter six that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was was great on the earth and that every intent and thoughts of his heart was continually only evil. Now there goes my phone. I forgot to shut it off. I don't even know who that is. Anyway, I'll silence that. My apologies, but uh, you know, you know it's happening live, it's unscripted, and I only do things in one take. So Jesus says that uh, in the days of Noah, people were doing all the normal things that people do until Noah entered the ark. And the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter six that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was continually evil. And then in the next few verses after that, the Bible goes on to tell us that things were so bad 
that God was sorry that he had made man and it grieved him in his heart. And it was that point that God decided to destroy all life on earth. But we read that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord and God would provide Noah with the means of being saved from God's coming judgment on the earth. God told Noah, build an ark. And the story covers several chapters in Genesis and obviously don't have time to read it all. So I'm going to reference different parts of the story. I would certainly encourage you to go read it. I think we meet Noah in about Genesis chapter five and it runs through 11, 12, something like that. Now, when it comes to Noah, we've asked similar questions about other Bible characters, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Why Noah? Why would God pick Noah? Why did God choose him to build the ark? A few verses later, the Bible says in uh, chapter Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, that Noah was a just man and blameless among his contemporaries. It tells us that Noah walked with God. Now, what does that mean? Well, it, it sounds like Noah was a good guy and he lived a moral life, which is important and which he did. And it's easy to think that God decided to save Noah because he was such a great guy. And you know, no doubt Noah was a good guy. He was moral, he was just, he was all those things. And there were probably plenty of people at the time who thought they were good people and other people probably thought they were good people too. There were probably even people who believed in God in the days of Noah. But we've talked about the difference between belief in God and believing God, two very different things. But when he asks the question, why Noah? Hebrews eleven seven gives us an answer. It says, by faith, Noah, being divinely warned about things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark to save his family, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. The answer to why Noah, why did God pick Noah is because Noah believed God. It wasn't just because Noah was a good guy that God told him to build the ark. It was because God said the world is evil, judgment is evil, imminent, and Noah believed God. Noah was warned by God of the coming judgment. God provided him with a means of salvation. Noah believed God. And that's key to understanding the narrative of the flood. In the life of Noah is another archetype. We've talked about a few of those. His life is a typical example of someone who believes God. We know the world is evil. There's a coming judgment. We know God provides a means of salvation in Jesus Christ. Like Abraham, like Noah, righteousness comes by faith, by believing what God says. And God says he has provided a means of salvation. For Noah, it was the ark. For you and me, it's Jesus Christ. And one of the criticisms I've heard about the ark is, you know, how did all of those animals fit on the ark? Well, there's, a, again, there's a lot of different answers for that question. God told Noah to make the ark 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, 30 cubits high. And a cubit is about the length of uh, your fingertips to your elbow on a grown man. And I think the way they did it in Israel was whoever was king at the time, that was the cubit from his elbow to the tip of his longest finger. And guessing the size of the ark, that equates to about uh, 85,000 cubic meters, about 450 semi-trailers worth of cargo. And if you're interested in that kind of stuff, there's a, a lot of information about that. 
um, available. Answersingenesis.org is just full of that kind of stuff. But again, you know, how big was the ark? Well, it was big enough. Uh, it was sufficient to save everyone who believed God. And you either believe God or you don't. People talk about evidence this and proof that, but it seems to me, you know, for whatever that's worth, that people decide what they're going to believe and then they look for proof to support what they already believe, not the other way around. It's not like someone goes out seeking evidence to try to figure something out. I mean, it does happen, but for most people, most people decide what they're going to believe and then they look for ways to support it, regardless of what side of the fence you're on with something. And people don't often change what they believe. It, it does happen. You know, I'm an example of that. But righteousness is credited to those who believe God. The ark was a big box. Didn't have a rudder. Didn't have a helm. Didn't have sails. No way to steer it. You know, where would you steer it anyway? The earth was covered in water. It'd be like that movie Waterworld, speaking of another kind of lame movie. Um, the people in the ark, didn't control the direction of the ark. They didn't control how long they would be on the ark either. The timing and direction of travel were in God's hands. In Genesis chapter six, verse eight, we read that the ark rested in the seventh month on the 17th day of the month on the mountains of Ararat. And those days uh, have some meaning. The, the dates are important on that. That was the seventh month of the Jewish calendar. And that's the same time as the Passover we talked about. And remember, we talked about the Passover lamb as a type of Christ. And the same time the ark came to rest on Ararat after the flood water of God, God's judgment began to recede. And it's also the same time Jesus was resurrected from the grave. Now, after rescuing those who believe from God's judgment, the ark rescued Noah from judgment and Jesus does the same for us. Now, someone could say, as we think about knowing the ark, you know, well, sure, Noah believed God, but did, you know, he built the ark, so he, he kind of rescued himself, right? Didn't the work he did save him from God's judgment? And that's, you know, an easy thing to think, and a lot of people do kind of think in that way. But the relationship uh, between God's grace, our faith, and the works we do is something that trips a lot of people up. Um, you can ask just about anybody, you know, if you stand before God and he asks you, why should I let you into heaven? A lot of people are going to say, well, I, I was a good person or I tried hard or I did this or I did that. But that's not how that part of the relationship with God works. And there's a New Testament passage that will help us better understand that. And Noah's life is, is an amazing illustration of the relationship between grace, faith, and works. And in Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verses 8 through 10, the Bible says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. And these verses show us the relationship between grace, faith, and works. Noah's life shows us a working model of that relationship. And the prepositions are helpful there as well in giving us an understanding by grace, through faith, for good works. And the first one's by grace. You're saved by grace. Um, grace is free and unmerited favor. 
In his interaction with Noah, God extends his grace to Noah. In Genesis chapter 9, verse 6 tells us that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And grace is free and unmerited favor. It's not something that Noah earned or that we earn. It's free. It's unmerited favor. And in the days of Noah, it would seem to be the case that no one believed that except Noah. And Hebrews eleven seven tells us that Noah was warned about something that hadn't happened yet. And Noah believed it. Because of his grace, God extends a warning to Noah. And it still works that same way today. You know, God's judgment is coming and we will be a recipient of God's wrath eternally. By his grace, God warns us of what is to come. Also by his grace, God provides a means of salvation. In the story of Noah, it was an ark to escape the floodwaters of God's judgment. Now for you and me, it is in Jesus Christ we find salvation from the fires of God's judgment. And God extends his grace by warning us and providing us a means of rescue. And then comes faith. Noah became an heir of the righteousness that comes through faith. Noah believed God. That's what that means. And then he acted on what he said. And God can extend grace and offer salvation, but until we come to Jesus through faith, we're just kind of standing outside the ark waiting for it to rain. Sometimes well-meaning people reject the idea that judgment is coming. I don't believe God will send people to hell. And, you know, I'm sure... It, the same thing was happening in the days of Noah. Oh, God's not going to flood the earth. God wouldn't do that. You know, a loving God wouldn't do that. Um, no one would have believed God was flooding the earth. You know, there's people today who don't believe God's judgment is coming. But like Jesus said, they kept going about their usual business and the same scenario repeats itself. Well, we wait for Jesus to return. And can you imagine what the people thought about Noah? Noah is building a giant boat. He believes God is going to flood the earth. He believes everyone is going to drown in that flood. And everyone probably thinks he's crazy. And the story for contemporary Christians really isn't that much difference when you think about it. We keep talking about repentance and faith in Jesus. And, you know, people will say, well, I suppose Jesus was a good teacher. He was all right. He's a good guy. But the problem is, is, the Christians think that he rose from the dead and then he's coming back. And worse still, they believe that everyone who doesn't believe that is going to face God's judgment and going to burn in an eternal hell. They're crazy. Well, yeah, that's what we believe. And for believers, uh, that the reaction to that can get kind of frustrating. And I'm sure it was the same for Noah. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, the Bible tells us that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. He worked on building the ark for at least 50 years, uh, probably longer, depending on how you do the math or what source you use to look at it. But building the ark took a long time, and it would have given Noah plenty of opportunity to tell people about God's coming judgment. You know, you can imagine him building this giant ark and people wondering what it's up to. And that's, you know, they would have been wondering. And that became a witness uh, for Noah. Now, we're saved by grace through faith, and then we are created for good works. Good works do matter, but they're not what make you right with God. When you look at 
Noah's situation, someone might ask. But Noah built the ark in his work, rescuing from God's judgment. And I think the right way to look at that is similar to living our lives as believers in obedience to Christ. Noah believed God first, and then building the ark was an act of obedience, not a means of righteousness. And Hebrews eleven seven makes that clear. Noah was saved from judgment because he believed God, not because he built the ark. And that's how Noah became an heir of the righteousness by faith. And when I study the Bible, what one of the things that excites me about it is the constant discovery of something that I have not comprehended before, something I haven't seen before. And one of the things that keeps welling up throughout this study of types and shadows for me is the archetypical examples of peace, of, of people, of faith, and our life as believers and the way people interact with God. And when I started this passage earlier in the week and I was studying this, I was thinking, okay, I'm going to talk about the ark as a type of Christ, which it most certainly is. But I've been fascinated by the parallels between the life of Noah and contemporary Christians. God extends us grace, just like he did Noah. He warns us of coming judgment through his word, just like he did Noah. God provides us with a means of salvation, just like he did Noah. For Noah, it was the ark. For you and me, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And God counts us as righteous when we believe what he says about our need for Jesus. And Noah became an heir of righteousness by faith. He believed God. Both Noah and contemporary Christians then go on to live in obedience to the Lord. Noah's life work, you know, he spends his whole life building this giant ark. And his life's work was a witness for God. And the ark he built was a witness to his faith in God. And it was also a witness to God's coming judgment. And Noah building that ark is a very much like Christian life. You know, it took a long time for Noah to build the ark and it takes a long time to build a Christian life. I, you know, I do like to do some woodworking. And when you cut, you know, take, you cut a tree down and you cut it into timber slabs, mill it into slabs and you stack it properly. It takes a, at least a couple of years for it to dry enough to become usable. Very slow process. So Noah building the ark was a very slow process. And living in obedience to Jesus and spiritual growth is a lifelong process. I've always thought it'd be nice if we could reach a place where we say, okay, I'm done, I'm good there. But that's not how it works. Lifelong process of spiritual growth, living in obedience. And as you live your life as a follower of Jesus, you build a framework of obedience through the process of sanctification that becomes where, as you do that, your life becomes a witness of your faith. And it's not exactly the same, but there are many parallels in the life of a Christian and the life of Noah. You're saved by grace through faith and created for good works. So Noah builds the ark, he completes it. That must've been a happy day for him when he got all that done. And then, you know, eventually the time came for Noah and the animals to enter the ark. The Lord brought Noah, his family, all the animals into the ark. And then Genesis chapter seven, verse 16 tells us that he closed Noah up in the ark. God shut the door. When he did, he sealed the water out and he sealed Noah in. And nothing was gonna change that. Noah was secure in the ark. The ark is a type of Christ. We are secure in him like Noah was secure in the ark. Once God closed that door, 
and judgment came, it was too late. Then the flood came. All life was destroyed except the life that was secure in the ark. I'm a little bit jaded, but uh, I know, you know God told Noah to make a, an opening around the top of the ark. I wonder if he was looking out of that, watching the flood waters rise, and I wonder if he shouted, do you believe me now? Just a thought, not that I'm jaded or anything like that, but God promised he would never destroy the earth with a flood again, and he won't. The rainbow is a sign of his promise. People say, well, that's just some you know, light refracted through, refracted through water. But just because you understand the mechanics of it, it doesn't mean God didn't create it. And people would have thought, no, it was crazy. You know, you're thinking that, you know, God's going to flood the entire world. People still think that's crazy. And the first time the world was destroyed was by water. God said he wouldn't do that again. He made a promise that he wouldn't do that. Rainbow is a sign of that covenant. And Second Peter tells us the next time it will be by fire. Just like Jesus said, just like the days of Noah, people just keep going about their business. And it's been 2,000 years, nothing's happened. People keep going about their business, thinking you're crazy for believing that Jesus is coming back. And Peter tells us that the Lord is not slack in his promise. See, there's a reason there's so much time. He says, the Lord is not slack in concerning his promise, but he is long suffering, not willing that any should perish, but come to repentance. No one should mistake God's patience for a promise going unfulfilled. Jesus will return and judgment is coming. Some believe that, but many don't. Just like in the days of Noah, people are going about their business, doing their thing, just like they've always done. Remember what Jesus said, Matthew 24, 36 through 39 says, concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my father only. As were the days of Noah, so will the coming of the son of man or so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in the days of Noah, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. So Jesus compares the days of Noah, God's coming judgment. Nobody's really paying attention, concerned about it. Noah's building the ark. You know, when you're looking around and the world and what's everyone doing, they're doing the same old thing they always do. What are you doing? Are you secure in Christ? Do you know Jesus? And when his judgment comes, when God's judgment comes, will you be safe in him like Noah was in the ark? If you're not, you can be. Believe what God says. We're sinful. We need a savior. We find that savior in Jesus. And it's through him that we are saved, rescued, protected from God's coming judgment. And if you are that person and you know that you're saved in Christ, do you know someone who is not? Well, we all do. And Jesus left us with the job of telling people that. So I hope you will. And I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. And thanks again for taking the time to tune in. And I look forward to speaking with you again soon. Thank you for taking the time to listen today. Let me know what you think in the comments. Please consider subscribing and sharing this with someone who might find it helpful. 